So this evening we are again looking at just one verse, Hebrews 7.26, and it is related to the sermon that I preached this morning. We saw this morning the similarity of our high priest to us, in that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, having been tempted in every respect as we are. Tonight we examine the dissimilarity of our high priest to us. Unlike us, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 tells us that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is, in a very real sense, one of us, as we saw this morning. But Jesus is, in another very real sense, not one of us. A good starting point to pick up our study tonight is just a brief review and recap of a point that I made this morning, which is that Jesus has no evil desires to lure and entice him into sin, as the Apostle James says. Though Jesus experienced external temptations common to mankind living in this fallen world, Jesus did not have inward inclination to give in to these temptations. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that the prohibition of adultery in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, encapsulates in its intent not merely the prohibition against the physical acts of sexual infidelity, but also against even lustful thoughts. The prohibition of murder in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, encapsulates not merely the unjustified extinguishing of another life, but even unjust and unjustified expressions of anger towards another person. In view of this teaching, or in response to this teaching, when we hear it, we ought to be convicted of sin and say not, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. But rather, we should, we should acknowledge, well then, I'm guilty too. It's not just those bad people out there in the world who are sinners. But if God's law penetrates all the way down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, then I'm guilty too. I am a sinner also. We have all had impure thoughts at least. And we have broken many of God's commandments outwardly too. But unlike us, Jesus never has. Both inwardly and outwardly, Jesus has an impeccable record of obedience to His Father. Jesus spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount as one who had actually not lusted, as one who had actually not harbored unjust or unjustified anger against anyone in His heart. Jesus wasn't up there preaching like I would preach to you and say, 
look, I'm not trying to be self-righteous in saying this. I know I'm guilty just as well as you are. I say stuff like that regularly. Because I don't want to get up here and thunder against sin as if I'm no sinner. But when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that even a lustful look is a breach of God's commandment. Even unjust or unjustified anger is a breach of God's commandment. Jesus did not teach as one who is as guilty as His hearers. Jesus taught as one who had never broken these laws. This brings us to the first descriptor of our high priest that we encounter in this verse tonight. Jesus is holy. True holiness is not merely about externals. Certainly it's not less than that, but it is more than that. Holiness extends all the way down to the heart, down to affections and thoughts and intentions. It governs not only our actions and our words, but inward motivations and desires. And right down to the bottom of his heart, Jesus was, Jesus is, holy. We read next that Jesus is innocent. And of course, this is the opposite of guilty. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus couldn't be convicted in any legitimate court. Not of a crime, nor even of a sin. There are many sins which are legal, you know. You're not going to go to jail for it, but you still sin. Jesus could not be convicted in any legitimate court. Not even of a sin, let alone a crime. It took a kangaroo court of liars and partial judges to find an excuse to crucify Him. For there was nothing in Him that deserved the cross. Jesus was no criminal, nor was Jesus a sinner. As the centurion who presided over His crucifixion eventually realized, but too late, surely this man was innocent. Jesus never knowingly consciously defied God's law and broke one of God's commandments, neither externally nor internally. As we have seen right down to the heart, right down to the heart level, Jesus was holy. Jesus was innocent. But perhaps did he sin unconsciously or unintentionally? We haven't looked at it yet, but we're going to look in our Old Covenant series at Provisions in the Old Covenant for unintentional sins. Which means there's a category for that. Was Jesus innocent in the sense that He never intentionally went and did anything wrong, but but perhaps maybe unconsciously, subconsciously, unintentionally did something wrong? No. The Scripture tells us, this verse of Scripture before us, Hebrews 7, 26 says that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. In keeping with James's spirit-inspired imperative to keep oneself unstained from the world, Jesus did just that. He not only refrained from consciously committing sin, but Jesus was 
circumspect and careful and diligent and self-controlled, not even to accidentally slip into sin. Jesus lived a scrupulous, impeccable, faultless life, and He was careful to do so, not even to unintentionally sin against God. Look, whether you jump into the mud puddle or whether you slip into the mud puddle, you're still dirty. You're still stained. Likewise, though there are varying degrees of culpability for sin, sometimes we walk into it, sometimes we run into it, sometimes we overcome obstacles to get into it, and sometimes we slip into it. But whatever the case, when you sin, you're stained. Whether you jumped into it or whether you slipped into it. Like a mud puddle, you're stained. Jesus was unstained. He neither jumped in nor fell in to the mud puddle. In all of these ways then, Hebrews 7.26 tells us, Jesus is separated from sinners. And this is the main point of our message tonight. Though Jesus is well able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted in every respect as we are, as we saw and as we emphasized this morning, and though He is therefore and thus relatable and one of us in some sense, in another sense, Jesus is not one of us. In another sense, Jesus is other. He is in a different category from us. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but Jesus is separated from sinners. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came down from heaven. And as we sing sometimes, was of Him there was never trace nor stain of sin. Jesus was crucified not for sins of His own, but as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. In our place, condemned, He stood. And having finished the mission that His Father sent Him on, He was raised up. And as this passage tells us, Jesus was exalted above the heavens. Jesus is a second Adam. Unlike the first and unlike every other fallen member of Adam's race. Different from each and every other person who has ever lived in that God, in that He has never failed to meet God's holy standard. Adam failed in the first place and every human being since with the exception of Christ Jesus, has likewise failed to meet God's holy standard. But Jesus never did from conception to the grave. And in His glorious resurrected body, Jesus is a holy and sinless human who lived as a spotless lamb, who was then slain as a fitting human substitute for human sin. Thus, effectively making atonement for human sinners and thus was a successful Messiah. Jesus is the faithful servant prophesied by Isaiah. The faithful servant. Unlike every other one of God's servants who have been 
in varying degrees unfaithful. Jesus was the faithful servant prophesied by Isaiah and the Holy One whom the Lord would not allow to see corruption who was therefore raised after making atonement for our sins. And as Paul says much later in biblical history, who was highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. Jesus did the work that he was given to do and has been paid, therefore, the wages that he was promised in the covenant of redemption. After taking on flesh for the redemption of Adam's race, after laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice, to be raised and to rule and to reign over the people given him by the Father and over the new heavens and the new earth forevermore. Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. As we read even this morning in our routine scripture reading, chapter by chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Do you see how very much Unlike you and I, Jesus is them. Which of us has been God's impeccably faithful servant, even in the lesser work that He's given us to do? What are you here on this earth to do? I mean, we have the general catechism answer to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But I hope you have, I hope you have some sense of the specific things that you ought to do. If you're married, you ought to be a faithful spouse to the person you're married to. If you have kids, you're to be a good parent to them. You're to be a good brother and sister and neighbor and friend to the people in your spheres of influence. You're, whatever your hand, your hand finds to do, you're to do it with all your might. You're to work hard at your specific job. It's not my job to do your job well, but it's your job to do your job well. Which of you has been impeccably faithful in the lesser work that God has given you to do, to say nothing of the greater work that Christ Jesus was given, which He fulfilled scrupulously, thoroughly, without any fault or error. Which of us has been highly exalted and given a name that is above every name? Jesus told even the apostles, don't insist on titles. And he says, you know why? Because you're all brothers. Even the apostles, he takes down a notch. Because he knows that when he leaves and ascends, men are going to want to grasp for titles. Be called, you know, apostle, doctor, reverend, this and that. But Jesus says, no, not so fast. You are all brothers. Even to the best of men. Even to those to whom He gave power to teach and to rule with His full authority. Theologically, we call that plenipotentiary power. Even to those whom whom He designated to have His very authority. He says, you're all just brothers. But He has a name that is above every name. Though none of us have a name or a title that is above every other name or title. Do you see the distinctness of Jesus? Though He relates to us in our weakness, 
and has experienced the external temptations common to man. And really is one of us in some sense. In another sense, Jesus is altogether different. But far from being a deficiency in our Savior, this is an asset. For the very fact of His distinction from us and difference from us is what makes Him an effective Savior for us. If He was completely like us and not different from us and not distinct from us in any sense, He'd die for His own sin. He couldn't offer up atonement for anyone else. It is indeed fitting, therefore, as Hebrews 7.26 says, that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. If Jesus wasn't all of these aforementioned things, then He would be just like all the priests that came before Him. If Jesus wasn't holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, then He would be no better than the Levitical priests through whom real atonement was not possible. Their work was all types and shadows, pictures, photocopies, likenesses of the true things. If their sacrifices actually took away sins, actually accomplished atonement, the author of Hebrews reasons in chapter 10, verse 2, then, quote, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? End quote. But the very fact that you had to do these ceremonies again and again shows that they weren't very effective ceremonies. I took my weed whacker in to be fixed in June. I'm not going to call names as to where I took it in. But I was called a couple weeks later and I was told it's fixed. Well, lo and behold, they couldn't start it up to demonstrate to me that it was fixed. So they fixed it again. But this time, um, I had to leave for Canada. Uh, I, went, I went back in the day of, and lo and behold, it wasn't fixed. So I said, well, I'm going to Canada now. You have two months. When I, when I get it back, I really want it to be fixed. So they fixed it again. Well, it actually wasn't ready when I got back from Canada. So I waited a few more weeks. And then it was fixed. So I went in, and they couldn't start it up. So they fixed it again. <laughs> well, long story short, they fixed it five or six times before I got it back in December. And then I was out using it yesterday. And lo and behold, it's not fixed. <laughs> If you have to fix something six times, you didn't fix it the first five. You understand? If you have to atone for sin six times, it wasn't atoned for the first five times. This is the logic of the author of Hebrews. Wouldn't they have just stopped offering up atoning sacrifices if atonement had been made? <laughs> Those priests couldn't actually atone for our sins. After all, how could they get rid of 
our sin if they were powerless to get rid of their own. Hebrews 7.27 contrasts Jesus with these former priests. He says, He has no need, speaking of Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice was effective, and it was therefore once for all. We don't need atoning sacrifices daily, or weekly, or monthly, or annually, or every seven years, or every 50 years, or at any frequency, because Jesus offered up atonement effectively, once for all. And Jesus did not, like those former priests, have to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin, and then for the sins of others, since he had no sin. Remember, we've just belabored the point that he was holy, innocent, unstained. So it is precisely because Jesus is unlike those former priests. Precisely because Jesus is separated from sinners. Precisely because Jesus is unlike us. That Jesus has been able to do what the former priests were unable to do. Namely, offer up an effective atoning sacrifice. And because Jesus has been raised never to die again, you never go to Him as priest and find out that He died and is no longer able to help you. If you ran into trouble with the law, you might seek out an attorney that your family has used before in a different context or something. But suppose you show up to his office and someone tells you, well, he passed away. You know, he's no longer able to help you. He died. This would never happen with Jesus. Though it could have happened of the high priests before him. As verse 23 says, they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But because Jesus has been raised and has ascended and has been exalted above the heavens and ever lives, therefore He ever lives to make intercession for us. And therefore He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. You see, Jesus is unlike us and unlike the former priests. Distinct separated from sinners. Friend of sinners, yes, but separated from sinners. Able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Tempted in every respect as we are, yes, but without sin. And this is what actually makes Him an effective high priest for us. Now, most of us, when we are different from another, especially when the difference is the difference of superiority in some respect to inferiority in the same respect on the part of another person. 
we tend to look down on one another. We tend not to sympathize with others' weaknesses. Or if we do sympathize with others' weaknesses, it tends to be because we recognize that we're not really that different from those with whom we sympathize. We have some recognition of our proclivity to the same sort of faults and failures. What a unique phenomenon we behold in Jesus then, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unquestionably superior, yet is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, having been tempted in every respect as we are. It is indeed fitting, as our verse says, Hebrews 7.26, that we have such a high priest. How could you ask for a better high priest? He's different from us in all the crucial ways. But one of us, in some pretty important ways also. He waded into this fallen world, lived as one of us, died in our place, rose, ascended, was exalted, and is preparing for us a place that where He is, there we may be also. We have a Savior who is sufficiently like us to be relatable and approachable, but sufficiently different from us to actually be effective in His Word. We're glad that one of us has gone before us through death to resurrection and to glorification in order that we might behold Him as the first fruits and have confidence then that, yeah, God is able to raise the dead and as He lives, so I may live also. And have confidence that where He is, there we may be also. And we're glad that He is one of us so that we can trust as we studied this morning, that He won't cast us off for our sin or spurn our requests for help. But we're glad also that He is not exactly like us. We're glad that He is not like the priests that have gone before. Since it is for the very reason that He is different and separate. For that very reason that He is effective. Jesus is a high priest who is similar to us in some ways and dissimilar to us in other ways, fitting Him to be the perfect high priest that sinners like us need. 